Hey, everybody, it's Carrie Champion, and this is The Brown Print, a podcast that offers solutions and guidance for the marginalized and those who feel left out. These discussions will act as a guide to mentor those in need of direction and also to inspire those who feel hopeless. We will move the needle forward and speak out on the issues by way of dialogue and telling stories of those who need to be heard. Being the only African-American in almost every environment in terms of classical ballet, it weighs on you and it wears on you after a while. Being African-American has definitely been a huge obstacle for me, but it's also allowed me to have this fire inside of me that I don't know I would have or have had. So do you find now that uh, you're in a position where you can start pushing the barriers a little bit and boundaries in terms of what people expect? I think that um, having a platform and having a voice to be seen by people beyond the classical ballet world has really been my power. It's not every day that someone can become the first to do something, but Misty Copeland is the very first African-American woman to be promoted to principal dancer in American Ballet Theater's 75-year history. It happened in 2015. And just to be clear, that was a huge accomplishment for this then 32-year-old ballet dancer. By all intents and purposes, Misty has defied every single expectation in her field. She's made history. I mean, Literally, she's made history. But that's not the most impressive thing that she's done. What's more impressive is that she's inspired so many little black and brown girls to show that they too can belong in a world that wasn't traditionally meant for them. Misty's brown print is the stuff that dreams are made of, and she has made it happen every single step of the way. Sit back and relax and enjoy this edition of The Brown Print. So I have to tell you, and I and I know you probably know this, but just by way of background, um, I came up with the idea of the brown print because I felt like um, for so many um, marginalized people, you don't hear their story. Um, and the story is never really how it's done the way that it's traditionally done, if you will. So people say, here's the blueprint for success or here's the blueprint for this situation. Um, and when you are in a marginalized community, whether it be a black or brown person, a woman, uh, a, someone who is traditionally overlooked, your your blueprint, if you will, is always brown. It's done differently. Your story has been well documented. Um, you've had documentaries, if you will. You've narrated those or you've talked about um how you've been able to, you know, rise in the ranks of um, ABT. And it is inspiring in so many different ways. So I, I start by asking you, like, because the first thing that that stands out for me, and it it speaks to it's never too late, dancing came to you later in life, if you will. Can you talk about that and how you were able to pick up right away and knew that this was it for you? You know, I, um, growing up in, you know, what I would consider a black household, like to me, it seemed like the typical black American experience. Um, but you know, I, I, it was, but at the same time, like we, we were on the very low end in terms of, you know, the, the, the places we lived, uh, you know, we just never really had a lot of money or food on the table. Um, uh, my mother ended up raising six children on her own, um, probably between the ages of 11, um, at, at, until, you know, we moved out of the house. Um, and so, you know, there was a lot of instability, um, a lot of chaos and music was the one constant thing that 
I had in my life. Um, and it was a, a you know a lot of hip hop, R and B, and soul. And my innate response to it was to move. Like I never wanted to sing, uh, and I, I didn't really connect with with music in any other way other than physically. Um, and that was kind of the the start of my my love of dance. But it it mainly served as a tool to be able to process the things that were going on in my life. It was a tool for me to express myself in some way because I was so behind in terms of my in intellectual like skills. Um, I couldn't yeah. uh, verbalize anything that was going on inside of me. Um, and then it kind of all came to a head when um, I was a member at my boys and girls clubs and um, a ballet teacher was offering free ballet lessons on the basketball court. And that's where I was discovered. And it kind of all just, just took off from there. Um, and I, you know, I, I just had an innate uh, ability to visually see things and be able to copy what I saw. And that served me well in school, but I wasn't learning anything. I could memorize what was in books and, and ace my tests, but I wasn't processing it. But uh, that served me well to be able to kind of break into dance. But then it opened my mind in me uh, learning to process and absorb things in a real way. The visualization like this, the the imagery of of you learning uh, or being introduced to ballet on a basketball court in California is something that is is beautiful to me. That is that is an absolute beautiful image because that is exactly the quintessential description of what I call the brown print. Mm -hmm. um, nothing traditional about it. And, and the thing is, is that you you took something that probably wasn't meant for you and made it yours. How were you able to do that? Exactly. Um, I think the well, number one, I, I brought up, like, I felt like I grew up in a, in a very black household, you know, uh, both of my parents are biracial. Um, I was raised by a black man though, my stepfather. Um, but my mother who was adopted and raised by two black parents, uh, you know, it was really ingrained in her that you are a black woman. It doesn't matter how, yeah. what, percentage of what else you are like that's how the world is going to view you and treat you and so that was kind of yep. that was my understanding of my identity from a young age um so i already had like a very strong stance on what it meant to be a black girl in america um and i was proud of that um but when I entered the ballet studio, I felt like I was in a very unusual situation. Um, you know, I wasn't in a, in a big professional ballet school. Um, it was a small school in a diverse town where I was really being protected. There, there was stuff going on in my school. I just didn't know about it. There were teacher students parents that pulled them out of the school because they were no longer getting the lead parts or whatever. They saw a black girl mm. getting the lead and I'd only been dancing for a couple months um, and none of it made sense to them. But I was so protected by my teacher because she saw such potential in me and what my future could hold. Like she's envisioned it all from the moment she met me on that basketball court. Wow. And I feel like because I had that protection, it allowed, allowed me to just be me in that very white space. And I had never heard classical music before 
I entered the ballet world. And I feel like my interpretation of, of how I heard classical music was very different from everyone else's. Like it, the, my, the soul wasn't beaten out of me by ballet. <laughs> like it was still wow. a part of me, like how I heard soul music. Like I heard classical this in a similar way and I moved accordingly. And, um, I mean, that all eventually changed. Uh, I mean, my eyes were kind of open once I became a professional in New York City four years later. But you just said something that said, I mean, it makes so much sense. And I say this in natural conversations. I have to feel safe in order to to be at my best. Mm -hmm. And that teacher made you feel safe. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can only imagine that was the reason why you were able to take something that was traditionally considered white and make it your own. And that is so beautiful to have that. But then you leave this world where this person has made you feel safe. And it's also, she's also allowed you to experience classical music in the way you you grew up, right? In the Black household, you're hearing it. Like it is familiar yeah. and the beat and the rhythm is so, I mean, you dance that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, uh, it is something to behold, Misty. Mm-hmm. Do you still feel that way? I do. I do. I mean, there was definitely a moment in time where I was a bit like frozen, uh, you know, once I became a professional where uh, it, it, I was no longer protected. I was no longer being uh, protected mm-hmm. from the the words, uh, the racism. Um, and it, I mean, I knew I knew it was there, but the ballet ballet became a sacred place for me. I didn't have anything that was sacred in my life. I didn't have any safety or stability, whether it was literally being houseless for most of my childhood, not having food on the table, being in, in insanely inappropriate environments for a young person or, yeah. you know, physical yeah. abuse, verbal abuse, whatever it was. A ballet was my safe zone. Um, and so, you know, once I stepped out of um, my school and joined American Ballet Theater in New York City, um, that's when it was like everyone, it was like a free for all. It was like, I, anyone can say mm. anything they want to you. And, um, and there were all these like, you know, hidden innuendos of what, what things meant. And it took me a couple of years to really decipher the language that is so often used on black and brown dancers, especially in the classical ballet world. And so much of that language is attached to the way they talk about our bodies. And that's also similar to what Black women deal with in general in the world. Doesn't matter what you do, um, but it's yeah. but it's acceptable, or it has been acceptable to to exclude dancers of color because it is a visual and art form, and it is about your aesthetic. You know, I think of it similarly mm-hmm. to modeling, where it's it's up to that person's taste. If they want you, they want you know, and they can say, "Well, you're just not your body's not right." And for me, um, deciphering that has been, you know, it's it's you don't have the right skin color. Because so I'm like in my mind, mm-hmm. I'm like, how can I go from being a prodigy? at 13 years old, being told I have literally the exact right body proportions, flexibility, strength, everything. And then all of a sudden I'm thrust into the professional world and now I'm, I no longer have the right body. So I was like, this doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> how did you fight that? I mean, how did you fight these, these, what I, you know, these words that you know are very racist and saying you don't deserve to be here because you don't look a, a certain way. Mm-hmm. How do you take the art? Because I think anybody who performs for a living, whether it be, you know, an athlete such as yourself, um, uh, artist, which you are, you're all of the, you encompass all of these things where you put your work in front of people to be judged. So there is a level of insecurity that you 
have to overcome because people will say something and it, it won't be positive. How did you overcome all of that? I, I really credit my mom and I don't think, I don't know that it was a conscious effort from her, but just mm -hmm. the way that she made me feel that it was important to really be a part of my community. And it was important for me to, you know, no matter what I went into, to have allies in the Black community next to me. And so I did everything possible to hold on to that. Um, mm. it, it sounds crazy, but like to hold on to my Blackness within this mm -hmm. white world. And, you know, mm -hmm. I was the only Black woman at ABT for the first decade of my career. Um, but there were Black men that came and went, and I used them as a support system. I used every single one of those Black men that came through ABT. I was the last, I am the last one standing of, a, of all of us <laughs> that came through at that time when I first joined. But, um, you know, it was really just surrounding myself by people that I could trust and that understood my journey. Um, and, you know, after kind of moving into the next phase of my life and career, it was realizing that I needed more than just the, the dancers around me. But, um, you know, that's when incredible black accomplished women started coming into my life and really mm -hmm. guiding me and allowing me to understand um, what it is to be the first, you know, that it's, it's okay to, mm. it's okay to be alone, yeah. but you're not alone. It's like, as soon as you step out right. of those doors of 890 Broadway, the, you're in the, the, a very diverse city with a lot of opportunity, a lot of, um, a, you know, ability to, to find people that can, that are on your side and that are there to support you. I love that you talk about a sisterhood because I think of every difficult time in my life, um, if I didn't have a Black woman to build mm -hmm. me up after I've been broken down by the world and by what you think are your peers and people who should be supporting you, you know, whether it be publicly behind your back, if I didn't have a Black woman in my mm -hmm. life saying that you are the shit and you can do this and you yep. must fight yep. and you have to be better. And, and you talk about... I couldn't imagine what you have to go through because we talk about being the first and we've all been the first in so many ways, but you were the first principal African-American woman that was a dancer for ABT in its 75 year history. Um, and while you are the first, it's such a wonderful accomplishment, but it also speaks to what is what's missing in our world, right? Mm -hmm. What's missing in, in the arts and, and why it, it shouldn't take till 2015, right? But it did. And you are still at the top of your game. And I could not imagine what you have to deal with on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And while you do reach back and get strength from your sisterhood, can you share uh, how you were able to come up and finally receive something that you probably should have deserved quite long mm -hmm. ago? Um, it was, you know, the, the, the one thing that I found that was different from those Black men that were around me at ABT was that um, I learned from, and I don't want to say they're mistakes because I don't know that they were mistakes, but I learned from watching the way they navigated through this white space. And I, I feel like it's kind of just part of my nature to sit back and observe people um, rather than being the first to like have a loud voice. Um, and I learned, mm. I learned so much about how to stay true to myself get out what I need to say without offending anyone and without, 
you know, making it more about learning from from my experiences and listening to what, you know, they have to say. And um, and I feel like that's it's been about having patience. That's all I could do um, is is keep keep my head down, keep working, um, just doing everything I could. Like I felt like I don't think I'm more special than any black woman that's come before me. I don't think I'm more talented mm-hmm. than any black woman that's come before me. That's, that's been uh, set on a path to be in the place that I'm in now, but all I can do is just keep fighting, working off of their efforts that the, you know, the path that they paved for me. And that's literally mm-hmm. all that I could do to keep going. I mean, of course I had to, um, I had to be an advocate for myself, which was so out of my comfort zone to build this. Mm -hmm. And and my husband, a black man, was such a big part of that as well from from, you know, we've been together for 15 years. And, um, you know, he's been with me through this journey and just kind of like coaching me and how to like go in there and like, you deserve the same way any white person to go into the artistic director's office and say what you need or want or ask questions. And it's just a fear for black people that we don't have that Mm -hmm. privilege. And then we miss out on so much. And, and, um, I think that was a big part of it was really just kind of putting my, putting myself out there, um, expressing my wants and needs. And of course, never, cause you know, the first thing they're, they're waiting to do is, is kind of feel like you're attacking mm-hmm. or being aggressive. And so I was just very conscious of all of that. That is so exhausting. It is exhausting. <laughs> uh, I'm writing down notes just so you know, I'm not, not paying attention. I'm writing down notes because whenever I have the opportunity to talk to um, people on my podcast, I learn so much. Mm-hmm. And you just said so, so many things that I just don't do. <laughs> so I'm like, I like the idea of you saying observe, like mm-hmm. observe your environment um, before you are the first to speak, because there's power in silence mm-hmm. and observing what's all around you, but also being an advocate for yourself. Like, oh, but how do you go and be an advocate for yourself in a way that doesn't make you come off a certain way. Mm-hmm. It is exhausting to be a black woman. It is exhausting. And how do you, what do you do when you're at that point where you're exhausted, not only just physically from what you do, mm-hmm. but mentally, what do you do? Um, that's why it's important to have a support system, to have those people that you can rely on, that you can just break down to, that you can, that you know, they're going to be there to lift you up, but to give you real advice, not to sugarcoat things. And, and I feel like I've, I've had that my entire professional career and I'm so grateful for it. But at the same time, I think that until I was ready to receive it, like there's no way to, to get it unless you're ready. You know, those people could be right there in front of your face. And if you're not ready for it, then it's kind of pointless. You get the announcement in, in 2015. Um, walk me through the days before you knew or the month before. And was the announcement, <laughs> I was going to say, was the announcement like, ah, oh, I'm glad it's finally said, you know, it's out in the open because I know behind the scenes, there had to be so much that wasn't glorious about getting to that moment. It was brutal. Um, well, you know, I feel like I... I just had a very, have had a very unusual path and, uh, to be, to be given my first principal role at 29 years old, that's unheard of. Uh, mm-hmm. by the time you're 29 years old and you're a girl in a ballet company, that's like kind of, if you're not a principal dancer by then you're thinking about retirement. <laughs> um, mm. so for me to, you know, again, I, I'd always looked at my career and told myself like, you haven't had a conventional 
experience. So don't try and make it that now. Uh, starting at 13 years old, only having four years of training before I became a professional, all of these things. So it was like, you know what? Who knows what could happen? I'm just going to keep working, even though I'm 29 and I'm getting this opportunity. Um, but so by the time I was, you know, 32 years old is when I was promoted to principal dancer, which is like ancient. Um, that that season was the first season that I had been cast in like four or five different principal leading roles. And I was still a soloist. So in my mind, I was like, oh. I'm not even thinking about that title. I'm doing everything that I've worked so hard for. Like the reason you become a principal dancer is to do these roles. And I was getting those opportunities. So I was just trying to be as focused and present as possible on, on the opportunities I was getting. And, and all of them, I was the first black woman to do them at ABT. Um, but the, the, the crazy thing was that this was the first season that I ever experienced nerves that were debilitating uh, my whole life. Like, again, the stage was safe for me. It was the first time I felt like I could be me. I was alive. No one could touch me. No one could talk to me. I could just be, I could express myself in, in any way I wanted to. Um, and this was the first time that, um, there was so much chatter, so much outside chatter around whether or not I would be promoted because I was getting to mm. do all these roles. So literally every single article that was written, no matter if I was performing or not, it was, you know, is Missy going to fail in this step? Is she going to fall out of this step? And if she doesn't do this turn, is she going to get promoted? Literally that became ABT oh my God. for that season. And I mean, I remember talking to Valentino Carlotti um, of, um, why can't my blanking right now? Valentino Carlotti of Goldman Sachs, like black man who's a mentor to me, talking to my manager, Gilda Squire, talking to Susan Fails-Hill, who was on the board of directors of ABT, incredible writer. Um, and them literally just like, wake up, look at the place you're in and the time that it is. Like, like you've lived your whole life and you're experienced your whole career without ever letting that affect you. Um, and it literally mm -hmm. took like call after call before every performance of me wanting to like break down. Um, so by the time I got promoted, I was just like, ah, okay. Like I didn't really have any feelings about it. Like I, again, I was already doing everything I wanted to do. And um, I literally think it took me like three years before it sunk in. Uh, I, I understood why that title meant so much for the ballet world and for the black community. But I struggled and went back and forth with like, why me? You know, why? You know, it's just like a lot of things are timing. I know it was my work. I know that it was a lot of things, but I think that it's something probably a lot of black people who are the first like experience, like why not all the black women who came before me, you know, and I'm so grateful, you know, and that's what's so important for me that I, I see that this is a this is bigger than me that I represent so much more than Misty. Um, and, and that to me is like how I can um, embrace and accept all that has come to me. <laughs> I tend to think when people are the first, especially black and brown people, but black women specifically, we're working so hard and we probably should have been acknowledged long ago, like you said, the Black women before you, but even you yourself, all the work that you, you said you were just doing all the, you were getting all the opportunities you wanted and you were amazing and you were doing what you were supposed to be doing. And 
perhaps the 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 promotion as principal dancer for ABT could have came three years before, but you were in the midst of doing what you do and what you love, and it comes effortless and it's hard work, and you just do it. And I think when the when the announcement is made and it's the first. You're just like, oh, okay, I'm just, I'm just doing work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know exactly. what I mean? Like it's, it's so anticlimactic because we can't sit and enjoy it because we're doing the work. Mm-hmm. Like we're just doing the the damn work. Yep. Is that good or bad, Misty? Is that a good thing that you can't sit back and say, okay, until three years later? <laughs> I don't know. You tell me, I'm asking. I don't think I would have been able to, even if I wasn't working, even if I was given like a promotional break or something. I don't, I literally <laughs> think I needed time to process it. Um, I needed mm-hmm. time to like, let it sink in. And I think working and, and keeping that going um, allowed me to process it more, more easily. I think the more that I, um, had more shows under my belt of, of those principal roles and was given more opportunities. I think the more that I understood in my heart and soul that I yeah. did deserve it. You know, once I was mm-hmm. really, really given an opportunity that most dancers are who are being prepped to be a principal dancer start getting those roles in their early 20s. So by the time they actually get promoted, you know, they're they're ready. So I was literally in one season given all these roles and I'm old and you're not easy, as as easily like adaptable at that time. So I, I gave myself time to get better in those roles. And then it allowed me mm-hmm. to feel more like deserving and like I I should be in this position. I love how we are oftentimes given incredible tasks and we always meet the challenge as Black women, no matter what, because (laughs) that's just who we are. That's just who we are. It's not even... I'm not I'm not <laughs> saying that other women can't do it, but we've been doing it since the beginning of the time. Mm-hmm. We are the the moral conscious of this country mm-hmm. in so many ways, the backbone. And and what we do with what we've been given is arguably the most important thing for me. You have written a book. Let's talk about that. Bun heads. Yeah. Bun heads. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to say say butt heads. Bun heads, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. I'm not being inappropriate here. Um and I think it's inspiring. Thank Can you tell you. us about it? Because that's what that's what we have to do. We gotta give back, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, so much a part of my journey, though, you know, we're talking about a lot of a lot of the uh just adversity that I that I've experienced and so many black and brown dancers experience. Um, but there's been so much beauty and joy and incredible relationships built yeah. being a part of ballet and being part of an art form. And I really wanted to highlight that and and really showcase it for a younger audience because what's available to us in film and television and media in terms of ballet is so negative. There's so many Mm -hmm. just like these negative tropes that are associated with uh, dancers just being so competitive and catty, especially the women with each other and being over-sexualized and um, having eating disorders. There's just, that's like what people see as ballet in in the public, especially in America. and I think it does the ballet world a disservice. Like people don't want to invest in an art form or something they feel they can't relate to or that's negative. Um, and they see it as kind of frivolous and superficial. All of that to say, I wrote a children's book <laughs> that, <laughs> that really, it's coming from my own actual experiences as a 13-year-old girl starting out in this small ballet school surrounded by uh, just a, a eclectic group of 
kids, you know, again, this wasn't a professional school leading into a professional company. So there are people that just enjoyed dance. Um, and so the main character in the book, Bunheads, is myself, young Misty, young biracial girl. And my best friend uh, is a young Mexican-American girl, and we call her Kat. Um, she was actually my best friend growing up, Catalina Maese. And um, there's just this eclectic group of like misfit kids that all find that they're this commonality in the ballet studio. And it's the relationships mm-hmm. they they build. It's the differences they have and see in one another. And that by recognizing those differences, they find strength in themselves. And um, and so the, the first book, it's a series. The first book is me and Catalina forming this relationship and her really motivating me, like getting through my first ballet class and auditioning for the lead in the ballet uh, Coppelia and us really helping each other to getting to the performance and the stage. So how many uh, how many books will there be in the series? Well, right now we're already working on the second. Um, I'm not sure exactly how many. I mean, I could do like 10 if if I was given the opportunity to, (laughs) Um, because I really wanted to I really want to showcase all of the, you know, this rainbow of of people that I've been on this journey with you know the the next mm-hmm. book Catalina the Mexican girl will be the star of it and I will bring in my best friend Layla who is Lebanese Persian and Cuban I have two and I, and I really wanted to have boys in this book too there's already a young boy in it Wolfie a young white boy uh, but I want to bring in yeah. two twins um who are um who are Muslim, um, grew up in Brooklyn, like that ended up in ballet. And so there's such an array of characters that we can feature that will give every child someone to see themselves through. Someone to see themselves through in such a a, a white art form Mm -hmm. that is now being opened up to the world because of you. And I think that is beautiful. Bunheads. I love it. I'm going to get it. I really, really appreciate you, Misty. You you. are always gracious um, (laughs) on and off the stage. So thank you so much for joining us here on The Brown Print and sharing your story. It is so, so inspiring. Thank you. And congrats on The Brown Print. Misty Copeland is always been nothing but class. Every time I've met her uh, in different rooms and different environments, and I've always wondered about how she had been able to maintain such grace under fire. Um, She seemingly doesn't appear affected by the world in which she performs, but as you heard, it clearly is tough. But I'm listening to her every single step of the way, and I was able to get some takeaways from it. The first thing that really hit me was when she said, observe the room. Uh, She has been a a principal dancer for ABT for some time now, but prior to being promoted to principal dancer, she said she observed the room. And it wasn't so much about complaining, but she watched what others did that didn't necessarily work in their favor. And to me, that is arguably one of the most important things that you can do in any environment that's not necessarily safe and unfamiliar, and especially in your work environment. Be an advocate for yourself. That's number two for me. When she said be an advocate for yourself, you have to be able to tell people sometimes that you are the shit. Like, I am good at what I do. Do not disrespect me. Please pay attention to the work in which I'm bringing into this room. And there are ways to go about it. But at the end of the day, you have to be an advocate for yourself so people understand that you know your value and that you know your worth. Have a support system. That was number three. Whoa. Like, 
Every time I hear that, I just sink in my chair at the thought of not having a support system. There have been so many difficult days. And if there wasn't someone that I could call on, namely a black woman who said, you can do this, you're better than this, you can overcome this, or they would fight for me when I couldn't fight for myself. It was so refreshing to hear Misty say she had that because that is invaluable in any environment where, again, you don't feel as if you have any allies. A support system, real advice, people to tell you what's right and what's wrong, even if they're your best friend, even if they're one of your closest friends, they're going to tell you the truth no matter what. And last but not least, this is a message for everyone. She explains how she came to dancing late in life. She was 13 and immediately labeled a prodigy. Uh, she then turned around and said that at in your 20s, that's when you're being primed to be a principal dancer. She got it when she was 32. She explains, and to me, this was the biggest takeaway. Not all experiences will be the same. Do not feel as if you have to adhere to a timeline. Do not feel like if you haven't made certain steps in your life by certain times or timelines in your life that it's over. She had an unconventional experience, and I really appreciate her being honest about that. She thought, well, I'm old, but guess what? Who says you're old? Well, is it time for me? Yeah, it's time for you. Oh, I missed my window. Who says? She created her own timeline and her own experience. And to me, that is so important if you want to be one of the first, if you want to succeed, if you want to live out your dreams. That's it for this week's episode of The Brown Print. Let's keep the conversation going online. You know I love to go online. Follow us on Instagram at The Brown Print Podcast and on Twitter at Brown Print Pod. Follow me, Carrie Champion, on IG and Twitter. You can find me at Carrie Champion. Don't at me if you got attitude. Well, okay. We'd love to hear your feedback. Or if there's a specific topic you want us to tackle or guests that you want us to have on, please reach out to the brownprintpod at gmail.com. Again, at brownprintpod at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. It helps spread the word. It is so important that we stay active and vocal. We'd greatly appreciate it if you showed us some love by leaving a five-star rating and a positive review. If you do not, I know you are a hater. Haha, <laughs> kidding, kind of. Not really. Meanwhile, uh, again, five-star rating and positive review. We need it. It really helps the podcast grow. The Brown Print is a Gallery Media Group original production.